Welcome, welcome, welcome to Looking California and Feeling Minnesota, everybody's favorite cinema podcast. My name is Michael McCaffrey. I'm the Looking California portion of this podcast. I am an acting coach and writer out here in sunny Southern California, which is not particularly sunny today. And I'm joined by Barry Anderson. I'm a director based in Minneapolis. I'm the Feeling Minnesota side. Um, it is also cloudy here, so apparently whatever we're going to talk about today is a gloomy subject, which is a classic 2010 Christopher Nolan masterpiece thereof called Inception. And, uh, oh yeah, Mike, why don't you, why, <laughs> for those of you that aren't watching online, his smirk says it all. <laughs> yes, uh, we are talking Inception from 2010. Just some brief, uh statistics about inception the movie had a budget of a paltry 160 million dollars and it made 829 million bucks which is a pretty nice haul and it's nominated for four academy awards uh best cinematography best sound editing best sound mixing and best visual effects uh and oh for ooh, it won those four and it was nominated for four more which were best picture original screenplay art direction and best original score so eight in total uh the movie stars leonardo dicaprio ken watanabe joseph gordon levin levitt marion cotillard ellen page tom hardy killian murphy and tom berenger who they dug up from somewhere is in this thing which i i was pleasantly surprised by and michael kane um Oh, and music by Hans Zimmer, which is quite, he, he did a good job. So the film is, the basic premise is. Uh, if you can summarize this, this for everybody, I am going to be pleased because this is a movie that uh, is not easily summarizable. Yes. So if I could summarize it in one sentence, I would say it's this. The film is dot, dot, dot. I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of a psychological, philosophical, personal thriller. Um, it's action movie, thinking movie. Uh, it, it's, it's about Leonardo DiCaprio plays, uh, I guess you'd describe him as a psychological thief who penetrates people's minds with his team and steals uh, information and he is hired to do something which is the opposite of that called inception where he and his team place an idea in somebody's head uh, so that they act in a certain way to the benefit of their client oh boy uh i don't know if that makes any sense so uh, you know being being in the industry that we are they always say that great scripts and great movies have an elevator pitch a log line um, you know, you can easily summarize and explain. People can easily understand them. Um, this movie does none of those. So this basically breaks every possible, you know, recommendation <laughs> of all kinds. And it makes almost a billion dollars and wins Academy Awards. So the old saying that nobody knows nothing uh, is in fact uh, true to this day. I, it is. And I'm looking on Wikipedia right now and they, they help. Um, they help. Good. Wikipedia is helpful. That's yes. It says the film stars Leonardo DiCaprio as a professional thief who steals information by infiltrating the subconscious of his targets, which that's it. And so the film takes place in our normal reality, in dream reality, and in the subconscious of various different people, um, which makes it quite 
complicated <laughs> and complex, but also it is the perfect Christopher Nolan movie. Yes. And the reason for that is that Christopher Nolan is a populist, entertaining director. That is what he does. Um, in some ways, he's sort of a modern-day Spielberg, in a sense. But the difference is, is that Spielberg makes movies that satiate his audience by giving them an answer. There's always an answer. You never leave the theater unsatisfied in terms of that. You always get the answer. Whereas Christopher Nolan makes movies that are nothing but questions. And that's what makes him, in his own right, a genius. That's what makes his movies extraordinarily compelling. And he never, ever lowers the bar. So he's always making more and more complex movies. He's messing with time. He's dealing with philosophy. Um, and as I said, it's, it's a personal, philosophical, and psychological film. And yet, he is such a gifted filmmaker and so skilled, the movie makes a billion dollars and is like, people want to see it. It's a, it's a big budget blockbuster. And that's what makes Nolan so amazing. That's what makes this movie, which it is complicated. I've, probably, I've, I've seen it maybe uh, five times maybe or more. And it's complicated and trying to figure it out of like, that's, that's what I enjoy about it is trying to unravel what this whole thing is and what happens. And we will talk about the ending uh, eventually, which may be my favorite part of this conversation. But those are my feelings. I, I, I really like this movie because it's a big Hollywood movie and it stars Leonardo DiCaprio in I wouldn't say it's his best performance, but it is his best movie star performance. And the first time in his career where I felt he was age appropriate, where he wasn't a kid playing dress up like in The Aviator, where it's like, oh, geez, he looks too young to be playing. He's, he becomes a man in this movie. And it's the first man movie he makes. And is, he's a movie star and, and he just puts his stamp on it. Nobody else could do this movie. Nobody else could star in it and nobody else could direct it. And uh, that's why I like it. So go ahead. So uh, normally you always ask me for kind of a hypothesis at the end, but the only way to have this discussion is for me to give my hypothesis at the beginning uh, because it will drive much of our narrative today. Um, whatever ends up with Christopher Nolan's career you know, whether or not the Dark Knight is his crowning achievement, whether or not he's got, you know, 40 more years of great blockbusters. This is, this has to be in his Mount Rushmore of movies, not because of the quality, not because of anything other than the fact that there is not another person on earth that could come up with this crazy idea, convince everyone to be in it, get funded to a level of a Marvel movie, <laughs> market it where nobody knows what's happening. Everybody that sees it has no idea what they saw and yet everybody loves it and recommends it. And you're like, there, every step of the way it defies logic. And it's like, wow, how did you do that? I know that, you know, you, you were talking about Spielberg and back when he was making Jurassic Park and stuff, he would make a big Hollywood movie so that he could have a trade off and make something like Schindler's List that wasn't as bankable. 
well, Christopher Nolan gets to do whatever he wants. Like, he doesn't have to trade off. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he decided, like, well, I just made The Dark Knight, and I'm going to make Dark Knight Rising, but I'd love to do this weird little movie that nobody understands, and everyone's like, yeah, I'm in. And then they make it, and they show it, and everyone's like, I don't know what I watched, but we should nominate it for lots of awards, and we should all buy it on DVD, and it should be on every streaming service, and everyone should talk about it. And when you talk about it, what do you decide? That nobody knows anything about the movie. Usually movies that are this complex and this complicated – they're very polarizing where like a lot of people are like, I hate that. Cause it's like, you know, they don't give me anything. And for some reason, this movie, there are people who say it's complicated or they don't particularly like it. Cause it's not, you know, it's not spoon fed to you, but it largely evades that criticism. And I think the reason is, is Christopher Nolan, I think by design, maybe by dumb luck, he took a like, philosophy 101 kind of some sort of a weird mind trick kind of question they would throw out in a college classroom married that a little bit with like a twilight zone and then he's like what visuals can i put that will trick people into watching this movie it's like well how about i bend a city over itself and why don't i have a hallway spinning around and it was like that's it those two images sold the movie <laughs> and nobody right. knows what's going on and even at the end you're like wait what and you're like was what? And you're like, oh man, you go back and keep watching and it's like, it, it's a movie that the, you hear like in a character, you peel them away an onion layer by layer. This movie, no matter how much you analyze it, it's not like, oh, that was it. Like I right. see how it's all connected. You're like, well, if, I, if I assume that's true, then that, and that changes over here. And if I assume that's true, but then that could be a layer. But what happens if it's double layer? And by the end of it, you're like counting on your toes and your fingers. And you're like, I don't know. I don't, no, I don't. I don't get it. And it's well, like- it, for me, I watched it again the other night, and uh, it, so it was probably, and I've seen I've seen it bits and pieces, but this is probably the fifth or sixth time I've seen it, and I had another reaction to the end of the movie. I had thought, I, I oh, I figured it out, I got you, and then I saw it again, and I was like, oh, wait a minute, no, that's not right. <laughs> well, I, I have a totally opposite belief now about the end of the of the movie, um, but it is true, and just in terms of filmmaking and just, you know, the sort of slog of making a movie and getting it financed and all the nonsense that goes with that. Um, you think about this movie and there are very basic scenes that would be in any sort of action thriller or blockbuster movie of a fight scene, a chase scene, a, you know, where the settings and all this. And it's like, Christopher Nolan sat down with his team and said, hey, I have an idea. Let's see if we can make the most difficult movie in the world. Let's see how uncomfortable we can make ourselves trying to make a film. So they have a fight in a hallway that has no gravity. Yeah. (laughs) So it's like basically the set is rolling upside down and these guys are on wires and the whole thing. And then it's like, hey, I have an idea. One of the settings will be in the middle of nowhere in this frozen tundra. Uh, you know, and like, I know people watch it and it looks great. Yeah. Because, you know, that, but like, just from experience, as you know, shooting in the cold in the Ugh. snow, it's not fun. With, also with Hollywood actors that aren't. Exactly. You know, not like yeah. you're going to Britain or you're going to, and getting Swedish actors that are maybe accustomed to it. You're taking people from LA and flying yeah. them to the middle of nowhere and saying, hey, by the way, look normal, don't look cold. And you're like, okay, well, that's going to be difficult. Right, and they have to stay in the hotel when they're not working yes. because there's nothing else to do and it's freezing and, you know, all that stuff. Um, 
which I remember Michael Caine is in this movie. And I remember him saying this is years and years ago that he, his basic premise for if he's going to do a movie is where is it shooting? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like if it's somewhere I want to be, I will do it. If it's not, I'm not going to do it. And so all no, notice stuff, Michael Caine did not appear in the scenes that were in the Arctic. Exactly. Yeah. He, he wasn't in those. Um, he was in the scene that was in Paris. Oh, yes. I can't believe it. So, and then you think about that, just like even these car chases and, and like shootouts and stuff, it's pouring rain in those scenes. Yes. And how complicated that is to shoot. And it's something that you don't have to do. Yeah, like, you, didn't, you didn't need it. Yeah, it's not like, oh, this is, but in terms of the, the, the real subtext of the story, it does work because like water has a certain psychological meaning in terms of in dreams and all these sorts of things. And so that it works. And that's the beauty of this movie is that Nolan is just like, Hey man, I'm throwing down the gauntlet. I am taking this unfilmable movie and I'm going to make it even harder to make. And I'm going to do it. It's going to look great. People are going to flock to see it and I'm going to get nominated for awards and I'm going to make hundreds of millions of dollars. And here it is. And nobody else could do it. No one would even conceive of doing it. Well, not not only would someone not do it. I mean, if you take, I think a a good, uh, not totally accurate, but a similar, uh, you know, what do we call it? Color, color. I don't know what the word is. Anyway, um, a similar type of film is when the original Matrix came out. Christopher Nolan was a more proven box office success than the Wachowski brothers, AKA the Wachowski sisters now. Um, when they did uh, The Matrix. And explaining The Matrix is extremely complex, a la Inception. And there's a great video, if you guys go search it, with Will Smith talking about the pitch meeting when the Wachowski brothers came in. And it's exactly how you expect a pitch to go if you'd never seen The Matrix, because you're like, yeah, no, I'm definitely not going to be in that movie because that movie just sounds like a train wreck. <laughs> and then it turns out it wasn't. But I mean, like every major movie star passed on it. You know, they're down to like their like 18th choice and Keanu Reeves begging him to be in the movie. And they had to go with a bunch of unknowns because nobody would be in it. Well, Christopher Nolan, just like everybody who's anybody was like, I'm in. You're like, do, do we, does it make sense? Nope, but we're in. You know, the studio is like $165 million. No problem. The Matrix, they're like, well, you get $65 million and you have to go shoot in Australia so you get half of it back because we have no faith that this is going to work. So, I mean, Christopher Nolan ran into none of those typical kind of pushbacks. It was like, yeah. oh, you can, you can be on a grand scale. You can go wherever you want. You can have a hand in marketing it so that like, people still don't know what the hell is going on. And you're like, wow. I mean, it's, I think even more so than the movie, just the fact that he could will this into existence yeah, is like it's like that's a, that's like a seventh wonder of the modern world is what I view this movie as, and it's so true because it's so complex and so opaque. Like you don't know, like the commercial, you didn't know what was happening. The trailer, it's just like I don't know what this is. But the one thing that came across that was very clear was that this is an event movie. This is an impo- important movie. It's got it a big was, movie star in it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna argue though. I think I don't want to hear your argument. Yeah, you okay, do want to hear my argument. Tuning in, everybody. <laughs> yes, it was an event movie, but what I think it was is it was like it was such an original. I haven't seen this before. Is what caught everybody because we you know we were getting into that world. I mean, 2010. It was kind of the beginning of the whole you know, Marvel Universe kind of picking up steam. 
you know, there was a lot of remakes, rehashes, whatnot. Here's this original IP that's tied to nothing. You have no idea what it is. And you see it and you're like, well, geez, I've never seen anything like that. Therefore, you have to go see it because it's so original, but yet doesn't look stupid. And I think right. that's what was the biggest appealing. And then, yeah, it looked like it's something, I mean, Christopher Nolan makes it very clear. I'm going to shoot on film. I'm going to shoot in large format. And you should go see this in theaters because he understands the communal aspect of filmmaking, especially in a movie like this. Imagine being in the bathroom or out in the lobby afterwards with people trying to figure out and having those discussions. Oh my God, as a filmmaker, it's like you would just have a huge smile on your face being like, yes, my work here is done because the movie lives on outside of the screen. Well, my question is, why are you having discussions with strangers in a bathroom after a movie? That's, that alarms <laughs> me a little bit, Barry. Um, <laughs> hey, did you see that movie? Huh, what? Um, <laughs> uh, thanks for taking so, it out of context and making me seem very strange. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, everybody, for joining. Mike won't be joining us next week. I got fired again. Um, no, but it is, that, that is true about it being original IP, although, as you know, I'm working on a script right now uh, that is titled Inception 2 Meets the Matrix 4. And it's a very, very complicated story but I think it's going to do really well. I think it's, and I, I want to star in it too, by the way. You could direct, and it's going to be great. We're going to shoot it. It's going to be raining and snowing in every scene. It'll be perfect. Is this, is this for Asylum Films? Is this for the Sci-Fi <laughs> Network? <laughs> Somehow I don't think there's a podcast that's going to be talking about that movie. Uh, 10 It'll be Claymation. It'll be fantastic. <laughs> Can we have it be Sock Puppets, please? Oh, geez. Why does anyone listen to us? <laughs> Good Lord. I, they're not. Trust me. This is just us talking right now. Um, okay, so let's get into the meat and potatoes of this movie, man. This is, this is some stuff we got to go through. Uh, yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot to talk about. So the big thing with this movie is that you go from reality, and I'm doing air quotes around reality. <laughs> uh, air quotes. Yeah, <laughs> reality to uh, dream world and back again. And it's hard to differentiate between the two because that's, this, that's what's going on with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is that he has been doing this so long and is so sort of uh, immune to reality that he's never sure whether he's dreaming or whether he's uh, uh, awake. And... The, the way the film is shot, it looks like a dream. And of course, the main point of the movie, which I think is why Nolan put this thing together, is that our dreams are like movies. That's how they are put together. Yeah. They are edited. Um, you know, if you in a dream, like are going from one place to another, you aren't there the whole time in the car driving, you know, the 12 miles to the load. It's like, hey, I'm going here, edit then you're there and or you pick things up in the middle which they talk about in this movie of like hey where how did you get here and if the person can't answer they're like oh geez we must be in a dream and then they interact as if they're in a dream um that's the beauty of this movie is that like it's got this meta text of like a statement about movies that they are a collective dream and that's why I love them. That's why I love, you know, Jungian psychology and all that sort of stuff in relation to, to film, because that's how I look at them. And film 
the the art form is born out of our dreams. So we've been dreaming the same way we dream now forever, but we now get have the technology to put those dreams on screen, which is that's what I think Inception is for Nolan. It's him projecting his dream onto a screen for all of us to sort of dream along with him. And anyway, so that's the point that I'm trying to make that it's this whole back and forth between dream and reality and not knowing which is which. And then you get to the end of the movie and you're not sure which is which. And he doesn't let you know which is which, whether you are still in the dream, whether you're in reality. And that's what I want to hear from you, Barry. Is whether or not we were in reality or the dream. Yes, the end, the end of the movie, which uh, I'm assuming people have seen it. We'll tell you real quick. Leonardo DiCaprio goes through all these things in the movie so he can get back to his kids and here in America. Uh, he's not allowed to come back to the country because people think he killed his wife. Uh, he did not kill his wife. She killed herself, but framed him uh, to make it look like it was him. And he keeps having this dream about seeing his kids. And then at the end of the movie, he sort of has succeeded in one thing and he comes along and he's going through a very dreamlike uh, landing in LAX and then getting to his house and then seeing his kids. And he spins a top, which is his sort of key to find out if something well, that, is real or not. That, that was his wife's though. Yes, it was yes. his wife's, which is a key point. Yeah. And he spins it and he gives his kids a hug and everything's great. And then, screen goes black and you hear the, the top spinning and you hear it wobbling. Yes. Which is so interesting for a visual filmmaker like Nolan to use a sound cue. Um, that's pretty interesting. But that movie ends. So you don't know. D is it real? Is it not real? If the, if the top falls down, that means he's in reality. If it doesn't... It well, it, it doesn't mean anything because if it's his wife's, it's not his key. So in his dream he could have her top fall over and signify that he's not in a dream, but because it's not his kick, it's not his thing. Mm -hmm. The, the, you know, people are so locked into that, that you're like, as a storytelling plot point, it doesn't matter what happens. Cause it could be something in his mind or it could not be in his mind. That's what's right. so great. I, I have a different perspective now that I saw it than when I originally saw it. A, because I'm older, uh, B, some of the things that have happened to me in my life, I, I tend to think, or at least what I project onto it, is not so much, I think people are looking for the definitive, is, you know, is it real world, is it dream world? And I think what is fascinating and what I, I hypothesize that maybe no one was doing is he's playing with the notion that regardless if you're in the real world or dreaming, most of our memories and experiences change with time and context. So therefore, even if you're awake, but you're remembering something, you might remember it worse than it was. You might remember it better than it was. You might leave out details. You might add something that someone else is like, no. I mean, that's why they say that, you know, firsthand witnesses for police are the worst, you know, in terms of uh, uh, evidence against someone. Because, you know, I had that, I actually had that in real life. I, I, I was driving home and there was like, literally like a fight. Like I came up to a T-stop and there was like, a fight breaking out and I got out of my car. There was a couple other cars there. And this guy was like beelining to go put himself in the middle of it. I'm like, well, he needs help. And we stopped this and everyone's, you know, taking mental notes. Cause we know the cops are coming. We're all taking a look at what the car is, what the model is. And the cops come and there's four or five of us staying there. 
and it was hilarious to say what color was the car one person's like white one person's like blue one's like <laughs> was tan with like a brown stripe and i just looked around i'm like we were all standing there and i'm like i took a picture of it so i showed a picture of the car but i was like oh my god without without proof without some sort of you know if it's just in your mind you know was it were you looking from the wrong side and seeing a reflection of the grass you know you have no idea and i think what's fascinating about this movie is people want the clarity of dream world versus reality but he's kind of like it's all kind of intermixed even our reality is kind of not always what we think it is and i think that's what makes it so frustrating and yet so genius is in real life you want you know if you remember something in grade school that was you know you got beat up or something like that you remember it a certain way but if you actually went back and watched you might be like oh i was being really obnoxious and that person was you know kind of you know it's like it may not be the sinister moment that you thought it was or there might not be you know you might thought it was really sweet when you gave you know some girl you you know a note and for valentine's day but you didn't realize something else i mean it's you just it's never as clear as we think it is and i think that's what he was playing with is he wanted no matter what way you wanted access to this movie if you wanted to be a dream if you wanted to be real whatever he was kind of like you never get that sort of payoff in life and i thought yeah, that's that's to me what it seemed like the uh, the evidence or the 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 theme was in my mind yeah i think that that's that's uh as usual that's totally wrong but thanks for <laughs> sharing that very um no i i agree i think that that's true and the thing that i took away from it this time which i had not before was the idea that the sort of bigger picture idea that movies are like dreams and dreams are like movies and that this entire plot, the, the, the whole movie itself, not jumping in and out, it is a dream, the mm -hmm. whole thing. And so the idea of whether he uh, you know, is awake or dreaming at the end, even if he's awake, he's still dreaming. Right. And so it's sort of like, uh, it, it is a little bit like the Matrix in terms of like what is reality and what isn't. Well, there is no reality. Like the, all of the reality is manufactured. Yeah. And, you know, of course, that's most true in uh, a movie in yeah. Hollywood. Like, and the idea that they're in Paris and, and uh, what's her name from Juno, uh, oh. Ellen Page, makes the city flip over onto itself, bend over onto itself. Like, that is the whole dream is something we think is solid is flipped over on top of itself. And, and so we realize it's not real, but it's real. And yet we're watching it on the screen and we know that it's not real. Right. And so we're trying to differentiate between what's a dream and what's not a dream when it's all a dream. And we may even be watching it in a dream. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I, I think I came to a similar conclusion that I wasn't sure because paying attention to the opening of the movie, you know, when Ken Watanabe's like old, like that's kind of predicted. So it's kind of like, okay, well they're in the dream already. And then I, I didn't, I hadn't remembered, but when everybody was kind of getting kicked out at the end and Leonardo stayed behind, they never really addressed how he got out. Right. Like, you know what I mean? So you're kind of like, Oh wait, He's, you know, and then you're like, then you're going back and that whole discussion of like, how did you get here? And it was great because everybody that came into the picture, that was like an epiphany. 
but nobody was there to ask Leo's character at the beginning, how did you get here? So it's like, there was never that clarity, even from our main point of view uh, right. character. And I think that's what's so great. And I think it's, it, the good, the, the positives about the writing of this is the fact that I think they have their own hypothesis and what kind of their kind of truth and not is, but they left it as wide open to interpretation so that everybody can have these sorts of discussions. So, yeah. you know, maybe if you lock Jonathan and Christopher in a room and said, okay, show me your outline. What, what, what was your thinking here? You, you'd probably gain a lot of information that we have to conjecture, but it was all architect. It was all by design. And I think right. that's what's great is I think there's very few filmmakers. I, I'm going to give two, I'm going to give a, a writing credit nod. And I'm going to give a directing credit nod that cannot be understated. And I'd have to go back and look who won best director in 2010. But I'm starting to think that you know, Christopher Nolan might've been robbed from the sheer standpoint. I watch so many movies and the visual clarity of a movie is so difficult to pull off in a normal linear non-complicated movie and it's poorly done all the time and so when you see someone that can visually convey what you need within a frame really easily is you know kind of like a gift well christopher nolan just took arguably one of the most complex if not most complex movies ever and he made it about as crystal clear at every step of the way what was going on you know kind of what the rules were what was important in a frame and that is so complicated and then conversely from the writing standpoint same thing. They figured out exactly what needed to be in there, exactly what needed to be told, what needed to be shown. And, you know, all the logic stitched together where you could kind of, you know, as you were kind of doing your mental checks on, does the logic problem work? It always came like it works, but yet I still don't know the answer. And I think those two things are so impossible to pull off. And they, the fact that they did it is like, wow that that's truly the genius take away did you enjoy the movie it is just mind-numbing how difficult that is i agree and what that the thing that's astounding to me is that yes this movie is incredibly complex yes. in, in terms of narrative and and all of that um but nolan is such a master of his craft that there is never a second where the film lacks coherence. Correct. It is completely coherent from beginning to end. And in a, in a very real sense, as much as Nolan is jumping around in terms of layers of dreams, you know, we're in a dream, in a dream, in a dream, you know, like three dreams in. He keeps that thread very, very clear and coherent and in some ways very concise and you never lose it. And the film is, oddly enough, for such a, a radical sort of idea, it is, it is structured in its uh, linear sense. It's a very conventional structure. Like you talk about the film opening with the Ken Watanabe uh, being very old and the scene with DiCaprio waking up on the beach and being dragged in. Um, and then, of course, you go back to that at, you know, basically the end sort of sequence that begins the ending sequence um, and everything in between. Like if you're, if you're uh, diagramming the structure of the plot, it's not unlike any other film. Right. I mean, it, it, it's a very, very found the, the fundamentals of the film are remarkably sound. Um, and I think the biggest problem with films that 
sort of delve into this sort of philosophical esoteric uh, topics is that they lose that ability because they're not as fundamentally sound. Um, you know, so that's the beauty of it. And, and so, so that he takes a basic, very normal Hollywood structure of a movie and turns it on its head in between those, those structures. And, that's why people can ingest the movie and not get angry with it because it doesn't defy the storytelling structures that we've been sort of conditioned to accept. Yes. And yet, because it's in those structures, he can dance around with anything he wants and with time and with space and setting and, and all of these things. And yet we accept it. And the basic premise of the film, regardless of how many dreams you're in and where you're going, this and that, the, the philosophy of it and the psychology of it, basic premise of it is it's a personal film of a guy trying to get back to his kids. And that's it. Well, you, you have that. And then the, the, the other thing is, is that philosophical question of like, you know, are we really real or are we in a dream? You know, it's again akin to the matrix and it's a, it's a, it's a fundamental one-on-one, you know, uh, uh, what do we call it? Philosophy one-on-one. It's just yeah. like, there's so like, these are questions that have been asked since time memoriam. And yet this is a fresh new original take that takes you on this wild journey in this wild place that really is based in reality, but not. And it's just, I just marvel less so at the movie as just the scale and brilliance of like, how did you take something so basic and make it so complex and yet so accessible? Yeah. Like it is, it, I mean... <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's not to overstate art, but I mean, when people look back at like, how did they build the pyramids? How did they build the Golden Gate Bridge in four years? Like there's certain things you hear about, you're like, that's not possible. This is that sort of movie. This movie is not possible and yet yeah. it exists. And you're like, wow. That's like, yes, the Golden Gate Bridge is beautiful. You know, the pyramids are impressive, but you're kind of like, well, how the heck did they get there in the first place? And that's what this movie is to me. Um, and just to, uh, I know this makes me angry, but <laughs> I don't know if it'll make you angry. So in 2010, the best director Oscar went to Tom Hooper for the King's speech. <laughs> I love it. I love it because of course, as, as you know, we've talked about this very briefly on the, on the show. I want to punch the King's speech right in the groin. I, I hate that movie so much. Because for a lot of reasons, most of which that I'm an Irishman and uh, anytime I'm supposed to feel sorry for some stuttering, muttering prick in the royal family, it's just not going to cut it with me. But uh, that the King's speech is like the antithesis of Inception. It's like, hey, let's just make a movie, a regular movie, and it'll look normal and people will talk and there'll be things and then it'll be over and you'll go home and be like, oh, okay. Whereas Inception's like, yeah, I got an idea. Let's turn everything upside down and throw it around in a dryer for 20 minutes and see what happens. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. The, anyway, I I I liked the King's speech. Um, I thought I thought Mr. Did, 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 did you, Barry? <laughs> yeah. I'll put marbles in my mouth. Uh, but I, I thought he got good performances, uh, great performances out of people like Colin Firth. I thought did an amazing job. You know, as yeah. a performer. Look, Colin Firth, he, he is great in that. And he's a very good actor. I and like so, Colin like, he's he got great performances. And, like, the, the movie looked beautiful. It was beautifully lit and stuff. But it is definitely not, I mean, that is not, like, the cinematic masterpiece 
that when you look back, you're like, how it would be like it would be the equivalent of like when Cicely DeMille made uh, the Ten Commandments, not not the one that everybody knows about, the one back in the 30s, right, when they yeah. basically built cities the size of Los Angeles out in the desert for a film. Like I don't even know how it's possible. Apparently, they're now excavating that original set, like it's an archaeological find. Very. <laughs> And it's like they have teams of hundreds of people uncovering the spot. And you're like, how is that possible? How in the world do they ever have the money, manpower? Like, it's the scale of which is just mind-numbing. And then saying someone that shot, you know, the room, everybody in one room, like, that's just as well right. done. You're like, well, okay, that might be cool. But, like, yeah. No, I think I definitely think in retrospect that'll be one of those years that people will be like, ooh, they, we, we made a mistake. <laughs> There have been a lot of those in yeah, there history been. where you're just like, oh, dear, what, what were we thinking back then? Good Lord. The English patient comes to mind first and foremost. <laughs> oh, gosh. I love the English patient. Oh, of um, course you do. Of course I you do. I loved it. So uh, now let's talk about uh, the cast of this movie because it's a Christopher Nolan movie. And Oh, actually, you know what? I want to talk about something else real quick. So – the Christopher Nolan um, genre, whatever you want to call it. Let's go through his filmography real quick and just realize how often he touches upon these, this idea of bending time and space and reality. So his first movie, his first big movie is Memento in 2000, which is all about time time mm -hmm. and the bending of it the twisting of it the turning it upside down and all around and that makes him a big um a big directing star of that movie and then he gets to make a bunch of movies interestingly enough his next movie is insomnia which is a, an often overlooked film and it's, it is. A, it's an un, it's an uncomfortable film it is and a very uncomfortable movie <laughs> you know what's interesting about it though is that it too because it deals with insomnia yeah it, it too deals with time and the stretching of time as opposed to the shortening of it or the twisting of it. Batman Begins, The Prestige. The Prestige is another one, man. Another weird movie about perception and time. Well, it's perception and time. And what's interesting, because that's movie, I love that movie. That's a movie we should do on the podcast. But what I love is so much of it is kind of the idea of perceiving a time and then how you use time. And in that, it was always like, how, how can I get something done quick versus when I have a really long view of it? So it was kind of like how people can change how they use the use of time in one's brain to accomplish something. So it was, again, it's different than this, but the theme is right there. It's embedded, you know, yeah. succinctly or, you know, throughout both characters in that movie. Um, then The Dark Knight, which, you know, is, is just a masterpiece. Such a great movie. Yeah. Uh, the followed by Inception, then The Dark Knight Rises has a few issues, but again, another movie I like. Now, Interstellar in 2014. Interstellar is a movie I did not like. I do not like that movie. Yeah, I do not like that movie. But it does deal with time. It does deal bending with time, of time and the, the bending of it. Yes. Exactly. Uh, and now here, here we get into the stuff. So Dunkirk, yes, 2017, brilliant. Now I love Dunkirk. Yes. I love it. I think it is a brilliant, brilliant movie. And it, of course, deals with time because he jumps around in time. And it's basically the same moment in time told from different points. Yeah. 
it's, it's almost like Rashomon in, yeah. in that it's it's like three different perspectives of the same sort of events just you know sort of stretched out and, and placed differently but it's again dealing with time and perspective and then Tenet is supposed to come out this year which it bums me out because I really want it to come out but like I also don't want it to come out because people won't be able to go see it and then all this and that. But like, I can guarantee you that Christopher Nolan will, I mean, he will retire before he will let that thing be shown on a VOD uh, yeah, before the theater. Yeah. And there will be the idiot in Hollywood that wants to make him mad where he will never work with them again. So that will not be put out until movie theaters are back open. So we will all have to patiently wait. But at least we have an advocate where he won't be like, well, let's just put it on Netflix and get it out there. Like, that. no, that movie is 100% not that. Watch movie. it on your phone. Yeah, no, don't do that. <laughs> yeah, no, he's not going to do it. So that's what the reason I bring all those movies up is to just show that it's sort of in Christopher Nolan's DNA to use film as a medium to challenge our perceptions of time and space and that's his deal. That's what he did. Just like Spielberg does childhood wonder and all that yeah. sort of business. The, Nolan does philosophical time shifts. Like that's his thing. It's like messing with our reality. And he is the best at it. There's nobody better than this guy. And he's only, geez, he's only 49. Wow. So he, he's got another, you know, at a minimum 25 years of doing this stuff, uh, which is, that makes it this is one of the few times that makes i'm happy about something that's great <laughs> we've like, now discovered the happiness in this time of quarantine yeah. it's the Who fact knew? that christopher nolan probably has another 20 to 30 years of doing this well he, he, like, he definitely appears to be the person who won't hang it up like you know we won't have the right. stupid quentin tarantino oh i might retire you're like no you're not no stop it like, or this, or the Steven Soderbergh. I'm retiring. Oh wait, here's my next movie. How about if hey Steve? If Steven Soderbergh never existed, the world would be a better place. So if he would just go away, I would pay him. Just be like, <laughs> don't come back to movies ever again. There are cinephiles listening right now. I know a few of them whose yeah. heads just exploded. Yeah. I've just killed their god. No, they, I literally. I'm not sure there's someone that I hate more from the standpoint like. He's not the biggest hack out there, but he is for his level of importance and self, you know, <laughs> or the industry love of him versus what he puts out. There is no excuse for that whatsoever. Like Rennie Harlan I, probably is like the goat in not like greatest of all time, but like literally the goat of filmmaking. Like the fact that that man ever gets hired on anything baffles my mind. Uh, but yeah, no, no, please retire. Please do everyone a favor, retire. What was what? So, wait a minute. You don't like Cutthroat Island? Is that what you're telling me? Uh, was that, that the Rennie one Harlan? with the Muppets or was that the one with Gina Davis? I, get I have to look up that. if that if that's Rennie Harlan. It is Rennie Harlan. Because I actually no, did a thing. It's for sure with, Rennie. I did a thing with, <laughs> with uh, um, Gina Davis around the Cutthroat Island time. I did a thing okay. with her. And she was not a pleasant person to be to work with. Oh, and uh, yeah, it's Rennie Harlan. And um, now I know why, because she was married to Rennie Harlan, I think, at the time. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. So yeah. But anyway, she was not a nice person. And uh, 
she's sort of obnoxious and um but anyway if, the point being i have a a standing twelve hundred dollars out into the universe i got a check from our beloved president uh the other day for the coronavirus i and i it's twelve hundred bucks and i've said and it's going to cover because it's out there and i said listen I will give $1,200 to any charity or to Steven Soderbergh himself if I can fight him. Um, <laughs> so Dude, it's out there. The purse is no, out there. Steven, here's if what, you're listening, I will meet you anywhere and fight you. You need to contact uh, Fox because I think they're the ones that back in the early 90s or mid 90s, whatever it was, when they had the celebrity boxing match, I remember Tanya Harding and stuff. They need to bring that back for filmmakers. So maybe it's I remember Project Greenlight <laughs> spinoff. <laughs> I remember watching Danny Bonaducci beat the hell out of yes. Greg Brady. Yes. It was hysterical. <laughs> my, my like the greatest thing ever. My favorite was Tanya Harding versus, uh, uh, I don't think she did Nancy Kerrigan. She fought someone. And it was like they had like they interviewed her afterward because obviously Tanya Harding just destroyed whoever she fought, and the and the lady that got defeated they were like I had no idea I'm like really you didn't know that Tanya Harding was basically like <laughs> a brass knuckle like you know street fighter <laughs> growing up and you were like a coddled like you know mid you know mid America like yeah no there are certain people I would yeah. not get in a boxing ring with and uh, Steven Soderbergh uh, if you're afraid of Mike I will fight you because I'm weaker than Mike but I will still beat you down. But I, I just think it would be fun to watch people watch <laughs> me and Steven Soderbergh fight. Um, okay, so we've talked about How does about any of this have to do with his inception? How did we get just, to fighting? <laughs> this podcast is a dream within a dream within a dream. Where I think I'm maybe beating people are actually Steven dreaming and sleeping at this point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now let's talk about things that wake people up. Um, the cast of this movie. So Leonardo DiCaprio, as I said in the opening, he stars in this movie. Um, this to me is is apex DiCaprio in terms of his movie stardom. That this is him becoming like a full fledged sort of grounded adult actor, as opposed to like a good looking kid who's who's you know hitting above his weight. Um, I think he's terrific in this movie, and I don't think it's it's a great you know like oh he deserves an Oscar type thing, but I do think this is like a perfect movie star film for Leo. He looks fantastic in this movie. And it's so funny because I watched it the other night and, you know, I, I, this is not something I pay attention to routinely, but I'm just like, who did his hair for this movie? His hair is impeccable. It is really. In this movie. It's great. It's like his hair is his co-star in this movie. And it looks perfect. He looks great. The wardrobe he's wearing is so perfect. It's so precise, and I really these these are things that I generally don't care about. But like that, this wardrobe makes half of this movie for him. It puts this, him in the character, movie, and it lets him do his thing. I think a lot of men kind of lament that they didn't grow up in an era where we had suits and you had like you know beard creams and you went to the barber shop and had your hair done. Yeah. This is like kind of like almost like. <laughs> Uh, imaginary porn for men like men wish we lived in an era where we could look like leo and our hair was done well so when you see it everyone looks like so sharp like they all do you're just like they're tailored perfectly you know these are men out there doing stuff and they're smart and they're like 
semi-athletic and they're like suave and they're like interesting and they're complex. And I'm like, all of them, every single one of them, even when they bring in Tom Berenger after they'd roughed him up, it's, it, he just seems like awesome. You're like, I would love to be Tom Berenger. Yeah. And you're like, in every single character in the movie looks that way. And it didn't it's matter. So- like rich, super rich people and just worker bees. They yeah. all, it was like, they all had, that was their uniform and it was sexy as hell. And it's funny because, first of all, I'm a, I'm a little worried to look in your, uh, your web browser for the, <laughs> for the porn that you're looking at, Barry, the, in terms hey. of people getting, are you like barbershop porn where men are No, I mean, I think that shape. for the, 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 the uh, whatchamacallit, <laughs> um, what's the TV series, How I Met Your Mother, uh, um, Barney, you know, suiting up. I think there's something, yes, there, yeah. there's a last art form that a lot of us kind of, you know, there's like a, a desire to be cool. You know, that whole yeah. flappers 20s era. And they just, they just look, I mean, that's why when Mad Men came out, people were like, man, I wish I could smoke a cigar and have a suit exactly. and be cool. No, it's true. And I agree with you. And it's almost like it, it reminded me of, because they all wear blazers, yes. you know, like it just, and it's not like suits, but like they're wearing a blazer. They look sharp. Um, I, I talk about this with clients of mine all the time in terms of finding character. And it really, for any actors out there listening, this is literally how I tell people to begin that process is find the shoes you're going to be wearing because the shoes you're wearing are going to determine how you stand, how you hold yourself. If you can find the jacket that the character will wear, the way it sets your shoulders and puts your, your body in that position. All of those things are important. And that's what makes this so interesting is that I was thinking about North by Northwest. Yes. So you have Cary Grant, you know, running. There's a plane chasing him in a, in a cornfield and he's wearing a suit and he's Cary Grant. He looks great. You know, he's like this, this iconic, handsome man. And there's a very sort of uh, visually anyway, a Cary Grant-esque feel to DiCaprio in this in that he's a very handsome movie star who is dressed well and looks good and yet he's Leonardo DiCaprio so he has a real uh creative fire within him that conveys so he's a he's he's not a 1950s movie star he's more a 1970s movie star where it's a little bit messy in terms of his emotionalism um which is what makes him a compelling actor and his energy is always off the charts. Like that's what I marvel at with DiCaprio is that I know he's doing those scenes, you know, 10, 15, 20 times. And yet he's bringing the heat every time. And he overacts a bit. Um, that's true. But he, at least he's able to do that. <laughs> you know, like you compare that to say like a Johnny Depp, who's the king of cool for a long time and underplays everything. And, that's why that's why I think DiCaprio is is someone who people really like him and really root for him because not only is he playing his part, but he plays the part of being a movie star really well. And he doesn't make sort of a spectacle of himself. He just does his job. He does it well. He collects supermodels and he goes about his business. And uh, in this movie, that's what I really appreciate about him is that he embraces the idea that he is a movie star and him being there is important, right? This movie doesn't work without him. And I was thinking about 
if we could recast this, who would we recast in it? And I thought, well, you know, with, with Nolan, he works with Christian Bale a lot. Could Christian Bale do this? Now, Christian Bale's a great actor, a great movie starish actor. He couldn't do this. He couldn't carry this movie. Um, your favorite actor, Hugh Jackman. <laughs> <laughs> like you, but I don't know where you pulled that from. <laughs> so Hugh, Hugh Jackman, another good-looking guy, right? Uh, you put him in this movie, this thing stinks with Hugh Jackman in it. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I, I don't know if you can think of anybody who could. Well, I mean, I know who I would movie. like, to, like I, I would like to cast, but a would never get funded. Uh, but Ben Foster, I think, could have been interesting. I don't think. He yeah, I don't. Good. I I love Ben Foster. I just don't think he's enough of a star to carry a movie. Correct. As you know, it takes it takes a lot of work just to carry a movie even if you're not doing you know sean penn robert de niro-esque sort of stuff just to be in all those scenes do all the publicity be the good looking guy people want to come out for and i don't think ben foster has that um and and even if you think about i'm also trying to go back 10 years and think of who would have been kind of at that right age group uh but i mean like i mean this was a leo tentpole I mean, this. Yeah. Oh, it is. It, yeah. it, it, he, I mean, I love the cast overall, but I mean, he was, he was the cog that if you replace, I mean, I feel like you could replace a lot of the other characters with someone else that could have also done well. Um, and the movie wouldn't have fallen apart, but I do think that without Leo, it, the box office would have been way less. The kind of prestige would have been way less. The energy would have been way less. Um, I do think he was still close enough to Titanic that I still think that he was pulling in, you know, the maturing female audience at the time. So I think this would have typically been marketed more as a, a like a male dominated film. And I think this became a more of a four quadrant film. So I think from a business side, it was also very smart and it was a, a good time from when Leo had rise to fame to where, where he was um, at this time in his career. Uh, yeah, I agree. It, you know, and you think about it. That's another interesting thing about the film is that it's, it should be a male dominated movie in terms of audience that you think like, oh, but it's not. And that's because it's sort of an action movie, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in terms of, you know, male, the cast is mostly male and there's no eye candy for men to, to look at. Like Marianne Cotillard is one of the beautiful, most beautiful women in the world, but she is not uh, highlighted in that sense. She, she's sort of on the periphery of the story. Ellen Page is in it and, you know, Ellen Page is a very good actress, um, but she's not, you know, this sort of uh, sex appeal type of, of actress, you know, that's just not her thing. And so, it's basically men wanting to be in the movie. So you project yourselves yes. onto whomever it is, whether it's Leo or, or Tom Hardy or, or uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and stuff like that. And women watching the movie as eye candy. Yeah. Right. So they get all of these good looking guys to look at, even though it's not exploitative in any way, it's just like, it has the cool of like a, a um, you know, like a fashion magazine look. 
and it's got that glossy sort of feel to it, which you know a lot of a lot of uh, Nolan films have that sort of look to it. But and actually, I, the cinema cinematographer is Wally Pfister, who's a yep. that's an interesting interesting choice. Uh, but that it, that's what makes the film sort of intriguing is that it never lowers itself to those base sort of things. You know, there's no nudity and you know, the violence is, it's very clear. The violence is uh, um, fake. It's, it's dreamlike, you know, and that sort of thing, um, which is interesting. So in terms of the cast, so we agree, Leo's, Leo's great. What's really interesting to me are the, are the secondary characters, the supporting characters, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who at this point looked like he might be something. Uh, he did 500 Days of Summer, which was, Hated that movie. It, it, but which it, it could have propelled him to yeah. be something. He did the, uh, the movie where he has cancer. I can't remember the, the Oh, yeah, name with of him it. and uh, um, Seth uh, Rogen. Yeah, um, which was an interesting movie, actually. Yeah. Uh, that was around this time as well. Yep. And so Joseph, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's a supporting character. Tom Hardy, of course, is uh, your favorite actor of all time. And uh, what are you saying? Yeah. <laughs> I really like Tom Hardy. I know he's not your favorite, but oh, I just dropped my phone. Um, but he's in it, and he's very good. He is and, good. And uh, Killian Murphy, of course, another Nolan favorite, uh, is really well cast because he has this certain vulnerability to him, and that works in the part. And as we brought up before, <laughs> Tom Berenger. I don't know the last time Tom Berenger has worked prior to this. Inspired casting, in my opinion, because he was fantastic. He's so good. I love Tom Berenger. Like, I just saw Platoon a couple weeks ago, and, like, he is just a badass in that movie. He's so good, man. And, like, he's somebody who his career could have gone a bunch of different paths, but, like, he could have been something really big, and he never really was, but... Um, he's a good actor, man, and he is so good in this. I love that they pull him out of the the, the basement balls, and bring yeah. him up for <laughs> for this thing. Um, so I love it. I I really dug this cast, and part of it is just it's like a movie star cast that like, hey, you're here are people who are good I mean, at what they do. Let's let them do it. Ken Watanabe is always fantastic. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think was fine. I've never I loved him in Third Rock from the Sun when he was a kid. But a lot of his adult films, I feel like he's missing. He doesn't allow people to connect with him in a way that I think is needed. You know, if he's not going to be kind of a weird character actor, um, I don't think he's got that lead ability to kind of carry. Um, so I can kind of take or leave him. Um, I think Tom Hardy is more talented and I think he's great. He's kind of the, the muscle uh, <laughs> with the heart in this. Um, I don't normally love... Um, what's her face uh ellen page and i thought she often plays her roles a little bit i don't know how to say it she plays them soft where it's almost like she doesn't quite get the intensity that i think is needed from some of her roles she was great in juno um but i think that lent to her strong points i would have loved to seen more out of her role in this it wasn't bad but i felt like there was more meat than she was kind of putting on the bones and uh, Marion Cotillard, I think the biggest miscast person in the film was her, not because she 
doesn't seem like it was a good fit for Leo or anything. I think the audience needed to potentially have a connection with her. And I feel like partly the French, partly kind of just the way she seems a little standoffish, it almost made her a little bit too much of a caricature of like, this is a woman that did something, you know, it was almost like she played the evil character too well that near the end when you were supposed to have sympathy and kind of connect, it wasn't quite there for the audience. It was just easier to write her off. And I would have loved to seen a casting that would have allowed you to kind of feel, be a little bit more nuanced and make you feel some of that pain. Uh, I mean, there was enough of a connection with uh, Leo that made it work, but it was like, he was having to do the lifting and it would have been better to have a better pairing there uh, on an emotional level. Yeah. You know, I would agree with you um, at the, the fear of being labeled once again, misogynist. I did think that Marion Cotillard and Ellen Page were the two weak links in the cast. Um, Ellen Page, I think just is not, um, she does not have enough sort of weight to her, enough gravity to her as an actress to be able to pull off that character, which I think is pretty pivotal um, to be a counterbalance to Leo. Um, and I agree with you. I think just in general as an actress, she is a little bit too laid back um, and, and, and just, just doesn't have enough of a sharp edge to her. Um, and with Marion Cotillard, I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the problem is, is literally her accent. It's the language. So English is her second language. Um, I think she's a very, very good actress and she yes. actually is very good in this, but there is, it is hard. She's, she's more impenetrable in this than you would want out of that character. And it's because of the language, the accent. And it's harder for us to relate to her and to get what she says immediately as opposed to have it just take a split second to comprehend what she's saying, which this is what happens often when people are speaking second language. The listener, it takes them a little bit to grasp the cadence and what they're saying and the meaning and all that. And so you think about... Um, you know, say American actresses or, or British actresses playing that part, it gives them a chance to be more vulnerable in their native tongue. And I think that's what that character needed. Because being the sort of villain is fine, but there was no vulnerability there, which needed to be there to make it a more uh, fruitful sort of villainy. Um, I don't know who you would put in there. I'm trying to think uh, back to 2010, who was. Clearly, it should have been Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> <laughs> for those that don't understand sarcasm, clearly that's not who should have been cast uh, in that. Um, I think Gwyneth was just starting her goop enterprise at that point, so she probably didn't have time. She, she had to came up, it was 2008 that she was in uh, uh, the first Iron Man. So it would have been, you know, right kind of as her second rise to fame after the early Shakespeare in Love and stuff like that. Okay, well, here's, here's the women who won Best Actress that year. Natalie Portman, Annette Bening, Nicole Kidman, Jennifer Lawrence, Michelle Williams. Um, you know who had her cast? I know who had her cast. 
Jennifer Conley. Oh, yeah. There you go. I think yeah. that's what to cast. Because she has a little bit of that. She can be a little bit kind of pretentious. Yeah. She's got, you know, she's attractive, but she also has like a soft side that when you pierce it, I think you could, I think you could connect with her and look at her pain. And so it wouldn't be so one-sided like she just wrecked everything. Right. Um, I think she's a little older than Leo though. Might be a problem. No, that would be, you'd be very, you'd be very progressive in having an older woman. With this was 2010. We were not that progressive. Yeah. Well then. then you could have been ahead of the curve. <laughs> you could have been cool before it was cool to be cool. Michelle Williams would be interesting. She's uh mm, I don't like her that much. She Oh Barry. And why she would have been way too young. She'd have been cradle robbing. Let's see, how old is she? Yeah, she she's younger than Leo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back then it would have been like twenty-four. <laughs> That's true. Um yeah, so it would be interesting, but I agree with you about those those two roles were a little bit sort of the weak links uh in the film. But I just, I thought overall the cast is fantastic. I thought the film is beautifully shot, as we talked about, by Wally Pfister. And there's one, one shot, which is, it's so funny, that, you know, Nolan takes these, again, these basic premises of like, oh, there's going to be a fight in the hallway of, of a hotel. And then turns it on its head, literally, where it's like, okay, well, the dream is collapsing on itself. It's twisting upside down. There's no gravity. And it becomes this iconic visual image of, Joseph Gordon-Levitt flying through this hallway, fighting with guys. It's like a space fight type thing. Um, but there's one shot that I just thought was so elegantly done, as, as much of the movie is. But it's after uh, the van falls in the river and everybody gets out and all these things. And Killian Murphy is on the shore talking to Tom Berenger. And Tom Berenger says to him, you know, your father wants you to do this and that. and the camera just uh, uh, dollies yeah. around them. And it never cuts, but it goes from being Tom Berenger and you, you, the camera goes behind Killian Murphy's head. When it comes back around, it's Tom Hardy who's yeah. there and not Tom Berenger. And I just thought, well, you, you know, that's not some multi-billion dollar movie shot. That's just quality filmmaking right yeah. there. That you don't need... Uh, all this technology to get away with that that's just being very precise in what you do and being creative in how you do it and you could do that with a 160 million dollar budget you can do it with a hundred dollar budget and he did that and i just thought wow what what an elegant shot and it perfectly sums up the film and that you start one place and it's one way you cut you you slowly move the camera and your entire perspective changes and you understand so much from just that small movement of the camera it reveals so much about the characters about the story and you know the moving the story forward and all that stuff and i just thought man it, that is just so elegantly done and it's sort of a a perfect christopher nolan cinema movie moment um encapsulated into that little camera movement anyway go ahead barry what you got to say man no, I mean, I think that the other person I was just giving it some more thought, but uh, I'd have to check her age. But I know that the I was trying to think of the women that Christopher Nolan's worked with and which doesn't have the greatest track record because most of his movies are male dominated. Uh, but he did work with Anne Hathaway in uh, The Dark Knight Rises, and she could have been another interesting choice. Uh, 
to potentially put in Mary Marion Cotillard's character? Uh... <laughs> and the world waits for exactly what retort Mike has stored for us. Yeah, I think she's just simply unlikable from the get-go. But I mean, um, I, she is she is unlikable. But I think she might she, be more accessible than Marion Cotillard was in that role. Huh. Interesting. I I don't know. I'm just here's I'm, another one. Hey, I'm pitching Scarlett Johansson. No, could Scarlett Johansson do it? I mean, I think she could have pulled it off. But there's something about ScarJo. I think people have a hard time connecting her. I've seen a lot of characters where, you know, she's, you know, opposite other women, opposite men, complex like relationships, but I don't know how much people would buy her connecting to the kids as much. Could be wrong, but I think that would be the hardest part of that casting. Okay. I came up with somebody. Emily Blunt. I mean, I'd cast Emily in anything. So I would too done (laughs) she's fantastic fantastic. and i think she would be great in it because she does she has this inherent sort of vulnerability to her and yet she has he's very uh, strong she yeah she has a strength to her i really like her um and if she's listening you know i just i'm available just you can email (laughs) me um and we can talk anyway so i think we're ready to wrap up with inception my Bottom line with Inception is is that I agree with Barry. This is a tentpole, Christopher Nolan, Mount Rushmore type of movie. And fantastic, fantastic film. I recommend people watch it. And to think about this, to maybe watch it and then take a couple weeks and then watch it again. And try to figure out what you can't figure out and then realize when you can't figure it out, you can't figure it out. You're never going to figure it out. That's the <laughs> point of the movie. And, it's, and I really love it. You want to see a movie star, a big sort of Hollywood movie star in a big Hollywood movie? Check out Leonardo DiCaprio in Inception. You'll enjoy it. Even if you don't know what's happening, it is pleasant to watch. It's uh, fun to be a part of. And uh, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Inception. Barry, final thoughts. Um, if you have to choose a Christopher Nolan movie to watch, don't choose Interstellar, choose Inception. I know they both start with I, but it's very important that you don't mix up the two uh, or you are going to be highly disappointed. Yeah, do not watch (laughs) Interstellar. It's the difference between watching Leonardo DiCaprio and Matthew McConaughey. Can you imagine McConaughey in Inception? Oh my God. (laughs) That, That I'd pay to see that movie just to laugh my ass off. Jesus. Uh, okay. Any any other final thoughts besides don't? I don't know. I don't know how you top that. We just literally just fell off the cliff there right at the end. So we should just <laughs> shut up and go off. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to uh, Look at California Field, Minnesota, our Inception Pod. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>